Hey, it's Chris. Welcome back to the podcast. I know it's been a little bit. Did you guys miss me? Uh, regardless of your answer, I actually did miss doing the podcast here. I had to take a break necessarily um, just because I had a lot of stuff going on, other business stuff. You probably know what that is if you've been following the channel. But um, yeah, so I'm back and here's the thing. Uh, this is gonna be some new and some old. We're gonna keep the schedule where we're um, hanging out on Fridays, right? So I'm recording on Thursdays and publishing on Fridays. Now, if you wanna watch this podcast, it's not gonna be available in its full, uh, like as one big video. Instead, it's gonna be clipped up. So if you wanna see the clips of the different segments, you can check out the clips channel. So these clips are gonna live there. I'm gonna go back to putting some clips from regular daily tech videos on there. There's also gonna be some exclusive content on the clips channel. So if you're unfamiliar with the clips channel, if you didn't know it existed, you can search for daily tech clips, daily T-E-K-K -K clips on YouTube. You'll find it really quickly and uh, hasn't been updated for a while, but we're gonna be putting like 700 to 1400 clips on there over the next year. And so it's kind of, if you'd rather sip, if you don't have a lot of time or attention for stuff, I'm always thinking in coffee terms, right? <laughs> if you just wanna sip the content, you can do that on the clips channel. And so that's something to be on the lookout for. I do wanna say too, we're changing the name of the podcast. I'm gonna keep the cover art the same for a while so that you guys can recognize it when you see it, when you encounter it, be like, oh, there's Chris. Um, but we're gonna call it the Daily Tech Podcast. So way a long time ago when it got started, it was the Daily Tech After Party, but I didn't like that because it felt like it was an afterthought and I didn't really want that feeling, that vibe, because um, it's its own thing and it, it deserves to be seen as that. And also, that sort of evolved and became, hey, it's Chris, but you know what? Somebody else had a, hey, it's Chris. I don't know who that person is, but I thought that's gonna be too confusing for people, um, even though I feel like it's mine. Copyright that, hey, it's Chris. Um, so yeah, we're just gonna go with the Daily Tech Podcast, and I think that makes a lot of sense. And as we do some other expansions, um, you'll just see stuff being Daily Tech XYZ. So one thing I wanna do in the podcast is make it the place where I kinda of update you guys on what's new with me and not just what's new with Apple or tech uh, or the news, um, you know, stuff like that. And so this is that one exclusive place um, where we can kind of do some hanging out. Like people always say, it feels like we're just hanging out when I tune into the podcast, which is cool. So a lot has happened, obviously, since the last podcast episode. One big thing for me, though, is that I finally did pull the trigger and get an electric vehicle. Now, I don't really want to share exactly what it is for lots of reasons. It's electric, and that's the main thing here. But what do people need to know about electric cars? that they didn't know. It's weird because when you get one, you know, you realize all these things that you never realized before beyond just like, oh wow, this thing's really fast. One thing I realized as soon as I got the electric car, not long after was, whoa, there's like this whole secret world of chargers hidden in plain sight all around you that you just never knew was there. It's like a veil was lifted or a filter, you know, that came off of your eyes and all of a sudden it's like, wow, there's a charger behind this steakhouse or there's a charger in this tiny little town who would have known or this little out of the way place in downtown where you would never think to look. Someone snuck a charger in over there. It's crazy. Uh, it's just a whole different world of chargers out there and stuff you drive by all the time. You just never bothered to, to look or you didn't really know what to look for or what that would look like. The other thing that's kind of interesting is that the range actually doesn't matter as much as I think people often assume. Now, it depends on the kind of driver that you're gonna be, but for me, 
you know, uh, I wasn't looking for something with 600 miles of range, which admittedly would be awesome at this point. I would love that. A lot of stuff has way less range than that. And you always hear about people getting range anxiety when they get an electric, but I actually haven't really run into that. And when we got this electric vehicle, we went into it thinking, this is just going to be for like around the area. I'm not going to do a coast to coast trip on this, you know? And so we weren't really looking for something with the most range out there. We wanted something electric and something that was nice. And that's what we found as we got. And the, the range honestly hasn't even been much of a factor, much of a consideration for me. Isn't that weird? Um, now, if it was your only car, maybe that would be different. And the other thing that I'm just really loving about it is that I can actually control it with my Apple Watch. And, uh, you know, that's just turned into one of my favorite features because you can like preheat it or, or schedule it, <laughs> uh, the temperature, you know, at a certain time, um, just with the tap of the button there. A lot of people gave up on developing cool stuff for the Apple Watch. So it was like a pleasant surprise to find that I could control so many of the features and functions from my Apple Watch, which I've been doing all the time. I'm obsessed with it. So let's talk a little bit about what's coming up in the podcast today. Uh, we're going to do some Apple news items because it's just fun to talk about what's new in Apple world. We're also going to go through a couple more in-depth things. One of those being which M1 chip should you buy now that the Max and the Ultra have arrived? Kind of do a comparison there. We're going to look at the Apple Studio display versus LG and some other alternatives. Give you some guidance into which one you might want to buy or even if you're not interested, it's just still interesting to think about, is it a good deal or not? It's caused quite a debate. I got a burning question to answer. This is a segment I hope to make regular. And that question today is, is Apple Care worth it? We're gonna talk about it. And I wanna end today with um, a segment I'm gonna call Rise. And over the next several months, you guys are gonna see why I'm calling it that. But I really enjoy uh, talking with you guys about what you can do to improve your life in terms of, you know, making things happen for you. It's all stemming from that five ways to earn six figures video that I did a while back and people just loved it. Uh, they thanked me profusely for sharing some kind of entrepreneurial knowledge. You could almost call it solopreneur knowledge. Um, and I don't know if you guys know this, the average, well, I shouldn't say average millionaire, but millionaires on average, that's a better way to say it, have like seven income streams, right? So if you're just sitting there at your day job or maybe you are an entrepreneur in a way, you're doing something like me, you, you started a YouTube channel or you're like a freelancer or a writer or something, you have that one business, I do wanna encourage you to maybe even branch out a little bit and find some other revenue streams. So there's something that's of interest to me. I know that you guys come here for the tech often, but this is a part of my life, you know, being an entrepreneur. And, and I do want to share that because I feel like it's a way to help improve people's lives. So it came to my attention recently that there's a, a large ish number of people who feel like the iPad air is flimsy. Apple's brand new iPad air. And I thought, Hey, I just unboxed that thing. What's this all about? So this news article says that complaints posted online claim that the recently released iPad air five is so flimsy. It makes a creaking noise when pressed. Wow, I actually didn't experience that in any way, shape, or form when I was doing my unboxing, but I got one sitting right over here. I'm gonna go grab it so we can test this. All right, here it is, iPad Air, nice and blue. Got the Magic Keyboard. Of course, in the Magic Keyboard, it's kind of like an indestructible tank, except for the edges, right? Because those could get scratched or something. But So uh, the article says, this isn't a cut and dried situation. 
uh, other iPad Air 5 users don't have the problem. So it sounds like some do, some don't. So this all popped up on Reddit apparently, and somebody said, my blue iPad Air 5 came in today and I'm already sending it back unhappy face due to the aluminum being so thin and flimsy just a firm grip causes the panel to flex and the parts inside to wobble like a seesaw that sounds pretty bad i can hear a little bit of um of the components almost like popping or cracking a little bit but that's because i'm putting weight on it i'm, I'm putting pressure on it like i never would normally so that's one question i have you know, who is just sitting there trying to flex this instead of use it you know especially if it's an expensive thing I guess you could probably hear that. Um, makes me nervous to do that. I'm just doing it to test though. I don't actually, I would never do this in real life. So somebody named Lewis Painter from Macworld UK posted a demonstration on Twitter and he said it's less of a creak and more of a click. I mean, if I really try hard, I can get a noise out of it, but is that really saying anything? <laughs> I wouldn't have ever thought by picking this up that it was flimsy or weak uh, or in bad shape or defective even though if I really put effort into it, I can make it make a popping sound sort of, I don't know, maybe, you know, as, as production lines are big, you know, Apple typically has really great quality control. If one out of, you know, a uh, hundred thousand had some issue or something, the chances that I would get it would be really unlikely. And there's a question in, and there's a question under this demonstration on Twitter, somebody said, is aluminum thinner? Can you feel? And Lewis Painter says, it's hard to say, but it feels like there's more flex or movement when pressure is applied compared to the iPad Air 4. Somebody else on Reddit apparently says that the aluminum backplate is a lot thinner than the iPad Air 4. I assume they mean the iPad Air 4, they said iPad 4, which I also have. You can almost feel the battery through the plate when you hold the device. <sighs> yeah, I, I don't know. Some of this just feels like some people are gonna like read into it what they want you have some people who are just like down on everything Apple does, which I don't even know why they're buying these devices in the first place then. And then you have people who buy it to use it and do big things with it. And they're not sitting there trying to flex the back and make it pop, you know? So here's a, a different stance from Lance Ulanoff from Tech Radar. Uh, who did the same test on a blue tablet. He said, I grabbed the blue tablet, removed it from its smart cover, and started pressing the 0.24 inch thick frame, the exact same thickness as the iPad Air 4. Interesting to point out, people don't always know what they're talking about. And it's a rigid piece of metal and glass that resists bending even when you twist it. It feels solid, and it feels like there's no place where I can press it and feel, for instance, some sort of gap underneath. I absolutely do not feel any components. So, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, I did have an iPad a while back that, uh, I forget which model it was, you'll have to look on my channel, that developed like a little bit of a curve because I think it had it in the backpack and when it was, you know, a lot of pressure in there, I mean, it had a very, very, very slight curve to it. I can't remember which model that was. For me, every time I get an iPad, it lasts and lasts and lasts. I got two really old basic iPads over here that I use as monitors for my camera uh, when I'm doing like a five camera setup in here. They're not pros or anything and they're still going, they're still kicking. Uh, they've worked great. iPads last really long for me, I treat them well, and I don't know, I'm surprised that uh, if there's any truth to this, uh, I would be just kind of surprised. 
So here's something straight out of Apple's newsroom. Apple launches the first driver's license and state ID in wallet with Arizona. Additional states to follow include Colorado, Hawaii, Mississippi, Ohio, and the territory of Puerto Rico. And we got a demonstration here. And so your driver's license and your state ID in the wallet gives users an easy way and secure way to access and present their ID. I'm gonna replay this so I can see it in action. At select TSA airport security checkpoints from their iPhone or their Apple Watch. So in the demo, someone's holding their phone up to uh, like a scanner panel and they double click on the power button on their phone and that shares their information apparently. Their name, date of birth, sex, ID number, state, issue date, expiration date, real ID status, ID photo. And this is uh, interesting. The first thing that comes up as uh, somebody who has an interest in crypto, right, is like, what's the privacy angle? Of course, traditionally, Apple has put out there that they're the most private uh, or they care the most about people's privacy in the big tech landscape but no one's perfect of course including apple you know there's been some times when privacy has slipped through the cracks like when people's home pod conversations were getting recorded and there was like a whistleblower that said wow you wouldn't believe all the stuff that's been being recorded from home pod requests or home pod mics so there's always this trade-off between convenience and privacy uh and in terms of like being able to be surveilled but wanting life to be as convenient as possible, especially in a situation like the airport, right? But here's what Apple says in their official press release. We're thrilled to bring the first driver's license and state ID and wallet to Arizona today and provide Arizonians, Arizonians, who knew? You never know what people are called from their different states, right? Until you hear it. Can add their driver's license or state ID to wallet and tap their phone or watch to seamlessly and securely present it to TSA security checkpoints in Phoenix Sky Harbor International Airport. So in terms of the design, it looks like it's kind of the typical Apple wallet experience. You scan the front of your ID and the back of your ID. And then interestingly, you also snap a picture of your face, which then the software apparently matches to the scan of your photo on your ID. And then, you know, it, it, once you've done that, you set it up on your iPhone. It's a very similar process with the Apple Watch as well, just scanning it to the machine. I see the convenience, right? That's appealing. I do wonder what the counter argument is. One thing that's interesting here is that, this is from The Verge, initially only travelers using the PSA pre-check at the Phoenix airport will be able to use the feature and passengers must continue to still carry their physical driver's license or ID and have it available if needed. So what that's saying is we're like really early in the rollout and you gotta bring your stuff anyways, your physical stuff, so it's not all that more convenient. Potentially, I heard somebody saying something like, well, that's gonna be real good. So what, give a cop your unlocked iPhone just to like sort through and go through? Um, I don't think that's exactly how this is gonna end up working, but I see the concern that people have with it. Probably a lot of it is just like um, non-issues Right, because you know, with a lot of stuff, you can show something from your uh, iPhone when it's locked, something important, there's a way to do that while keeping it locked, the rest of the content's locked. So it'll be interesting to see how this rolls out. This kind of goes along with Apple's uh, initiative to include car keys, you know, digital car keys on your phone or your watch as well. So recently, Apple came out with a brand new computer, the Mac Studio, and as part of the announcement, it came out that Apple also has a new chip the M1 Ultra, which looks absolutely incredible. It's enormous. But Apple also has now the M1, just a regular M1, the M1 Pro, the M1 Max, and the M1 Ultra. So we have 
four different versions of the M1 chip that you could choose from. The question is, which one is right for you? Let's take a look here. We got an interesting comparison chart from CNET. If you're looking at the total CPUs, the regular Apple M1 has eight cores. The M1 Ultra on the other end of the spectrum goes from eight all the way to 20. And in between with the M1 Max and the M1 Pro, the Max has 10 and the Pro actually can have eight or 10. Keep in mind that the regular M1 chip was such a leap for, in terms of just like regular performance for people from all the Intel processors, people were amazed at the regular M1 with its only four cores, performance cores, only four efficiency cores. And then you pop up to the M1 Ultra and that thing has 16 performance cores, 16. Now in the graphics department, the GPU department, this is where things really get interesting, right? In this lineup, because the M1 has seven or eight GPU cores. The Ultra goes all the way up to 48 or 64. <laughs> wow. So look, Apple isn't really known for like gaming, hardcore gaming, AAA games right now, which would definitely make use of a GPU. But if you're doing something professional, like crazy 8K video editing with like multiple streams of that in HDR with crazy bit rates, then maybe you work at a Hollywood you know, place and 48 or 64 GPU cores is really gonna move the needle for you. For most people, that's absolute overkill. If you just find that you're a designer or you do some CAD stuff, um, you know, that sort of professional thing, probably the M1 Max the M1, or the M1 Pro with the 14 or 16 on the Pro or 24 and 32 GPU cores on the M1 Max are gonna be even plenty of power for you. Most people, honestly, the vast majority of people are gonna be super happy with just the regular M1. Really interesting to note that the neural engine cores are 16 across the board from the M1 to the Pro to the Max until you get to the Ultra, then it's 32, double. The Max memory that's supported goes from 16 to 32 to 64 to 128 as you go up the line from M1 to Pro to Max to Ultra. For you video editors out there, the ProRes accelerators are non-existent in the regular M1, but look, the M1 is still a beast at video editing for most people. But if you're beyond hobbyist, you can get one Pro Res Accelerator in the Pro, you can get two in the Max and four in the Ultra. Now here's where the rubber really meets the road. Somebody out there is just gonna be like, I got money to burn, I just want the Ultra just to have it in the same way that I would own a Ferrari or a Lamborghini, not because I actually have anywhere to like go race that thing, but it's more about like, hey, I got it. You can only get the Ultra in the Mac Studio, which Apple has cleverly labeled an Empower Station. Not a power station, an Empower Station. And that starts at $19.99. And if you do want the Ultra, you gotta bump up to at least $39.99. So basically four grand if you wanna get in on the Ultra. Moving backwards down the line, if you want a Max, you can get that in the MacBook Pro 14 or 16 inch or the Mac Studio. Now, if you're looking for a Pro, you can get that in either the 14 or 16 inch. MacBook Pro, and then the regular old M1, which honestly is really, really awesome, you'll be able to find in the MacBook Air, the iPad Pro 5th Gen, the iMac 24-inch 2021, or the Mac Mini. Now, I realize that the M1 Ultra, for most people, is just like, just like the Ferrari. It's just like, I'm never gonna get that, but what would it be like to have? Are there any like practical benefits aside from just lots of power? Well, because of the Ultra Fusion setup, you do actually get two of everything, which means there's two Thunderbolt controllers and two memory controllers. So that's why the Mac Studio, as this article points out, 
with the M1 Ultra, has more Thunderbolt ports, and can accommodate twice the memory of the M1 Max. That's because it's basically a dual processor system. Do you guys remember a few years ago when everyone was like speculating Apple just given up on the Mac? What's going on with the Mac? It's just like a dead product category to Apple. And now we have the M1 Max and the M1 Ultra and a slew of new Apple Silicon powered products. And people are like, whoa, the Mac is for real. And it only took a few years of turnaround time. So in reality though, who would use the M1 Ultra or what could you do with it? Well, Apple just spells it out right on the website. You can do complex particle simulations or massive 3D environments that were previously impossible to render. Now, I don't find those things are part of my everyday work experience. <laughs> but you know, in all seriousness, there are people doing important work that do need a lot of power. And you know what this is? With If you pop the M1 Ultra into your Mac, you basically have almost like a supercomputer for consumers. That's starting to be what it feels like. So uh, there's a breakdown of the CPU performance you can see on Apple's website. It says uh, you can use NASA Tetris. I don't know what that is. That must be some crazy software. Houdini effects you're gonna get more performance out of, but for practical stuff, for like more uh, normal jobs and people, Adobe Photoshop is gonna go two and a half times faster uh, in the Mac Studio with the M1 Ultra. And then there's Vectorworks. That's a more normal program that people might actually use. That's gonna go 1.6 times faster with the Ultra. And then there's Affinity Photo. You know, this is something that people would actually use one and a half times faster for processing. Now, look, this stuff does matter, these M1 chips, more than the iterations we saw from recent Intel chips in Macs. Because as a video editor myself, even the Pro and the Macs, they're like five times faster than my old Intel-based setup for rendering stuff. That's actually a significant amount of time because on my 2018 uh, MacBook Pro, the 16-inch, it was slow, like rendering stuff. I would do like optical flow and slow some stuff down and insert some new frames to make it look really smooth. And that took a while for that computer to chop up. Five times improvement is a big deal if you're coming from an Intel-based Mac. So this is a system on a chip, it's an SOC. And without getting way bogged down into all the details of what that means, you're probably wondering, aside from the price, are there any downsides if I go with this? One downside is that an SOC is irreplaceable, the component. So you can't replace the components of an SOC, even the RAM or the storage. But let's be honest, is that really a big concern for you day in and day out? If you're buying an Apple, you're probably not super obsessed with like building your own computer and you know upgrading stuff. Very few people actually do that on the Mac side or care about that, right? Because if you do care about it, you go the PC route. All right, so enough talking, enough yapping. What you really wanna know is, well, which chip is right for me? You've learned all kinds of interesting things, but help me decide. Honestly, I don't think you have to put as much thought into it as you might think that you do, because Apple's done a really good job of placing these chips in the machines where people are bound to use them in the first place and get the most out of them. If you're buying a MacBook Air or an iPad Pro or an iMac or a Mac Mini and you're just having the M1 as an option, that's probably all you need, right? There's no thinking involved. You're not doing anything really crazy with those machines that's gonna demand a whole ton of power. On the other hand, if you're looking at either the 14 or 16 inch MacBook Pro, you know already that you need something with a little extra power 
uh, a little more oomph that's gonna let you be mobile, but still do serious design or CAD work or video editing. You already know that, photography. And in that case, yes, the Pro or the Max is gonna slide right in, right into your workflow and let you get the things done that you need to do. Now things get slightly more interesting with the Mac Studio, and I'll tell you why. The highest end M1 chips, especially the Ultra, need some serious heat management. If you're doing really intensive tasks, you absolutely need to keep things cool, and the Studio's design allows for that cooling in a way that you're not gonna find on a laptop. But what's the big deal when it comes to the Studio? it's really not meant to be portable. It, it sort of is portable because you could literally put it in a backpack and bring it with you, but it's really not meant for that specifically. I guess if you're the kind of person who really needs to go set up shop with a client and bring a display, your own display, some people do this, stick everything in a Pelican case and keep it safe on the flight, you know, you could do this, but it's really meant to be more desk-based. And if you're buying this for its power, you're gonna have a crazy desk setup anyways that has a lot of monitors, probably at least one, but maybe several. And my main point here is if you're looking at this setup in the first place, then you already know what you need. And even if you only are getting the Max and not the Ultra, still, you are doing some pretty intense work. And this is like the same thing I tell people all the time. How do I know if I should get the iPhone 13 Pro or just the regular? you know if you would be considered a pro, and if you have to ask, then you're not. And it's the same thing with the Max and the Ultra, I think. Let's talk a little bit about Apple's new studio display. Now, this is one thing that they didn't send me. Uh, they usually send me the iPads, they usually send me the iPhones, got the new Apple Watch from them to review. The Mac team hasn't been sending me stuff uh, very frequently for the last couple years to check out. So I haven't actually gone hands-on with this yet, but I desperately would like to Number one, because I like Apple products and I'm just curious, I'm interested. Number two, if you take away the price, it seems really appealing to have a bunch of stuff conveniently packaged together in a minimalistic, good looking product, right? It's been a little bit controversial. I'm looking at Dan Seifert's thread here on Twitter and this is what he says. There's been a lot of fair criticism about the studio display's value per dollar, but I gotta say, there's something appealing about a high-end display that includes, number one, a good web, a webcam, number two, a good mic, number three, good speakers, all in one package that I can just plug into my laptop. Basically, the point being, you can just plop this down on your desk, have something that not only looks good, but gets rid of a bunch of clutter potentially on your desk. Don't have to plug in separate speakers, for instance. Don't have to plug in a separate webcam potentially, although you might want to. And honestly, you know, one of the criticisms, we're gonna get to the price and the value discussion in a second, but one of the criticisms already is like the webcam could be better. And I, I've always been a little bit puzzled why Apple includes the webcams that they do. It's always like just passable, it's never like, wow, that's amazing quality in a webcam, which I sort of would expect from Apple, who makes incredible cameras for the backs of iPhones. So the camera that they did include, they call it sensational. It's a 12 megapixel ultra wide camera with center stage. You know that I like center stage. I'm a fan of it. On the iPad in particular, it's like my go-to thing for whenever I'm doing a meeting. But as Dan points out in his Twitter thread, it goes on, he says, I think the era of my try hard mirrorless camera as a webcam setup is coming to an end. 
And if you're listening to the audio version of this podcast, I'm showing an Elgato setup with you know, dual monitors, you know, speakers everywhere, got lights, and you've got the stand with your DSLR pointing at you, which would be the ultimate web webcam experience, right? So Dan's like, maybe that's coming to an end, this kind of crazy thing. I think you always have this battle between, for your desk setup, that it needs to be crazy and complicated and just have as much stuff packed in as possible versus you got these minimalists out there and you know they wanna get rid of all the clutter and just have the bare minimum. And this display really fits in with that mentality and attitude. And whatever you do, whether you do the simplistic, you know, everything in one product sort of approach, or you prefer the really complicated sort of Elgato looking setup, there's always gonna be trade-offs. And I want people to keep that in mind as they're either praising or destroying the, the good or bad about this particular display. So Christian Selig also pointed out, uh, here's a quick visualization for you, 4K versus 5K resolution. This is also on Twitter if you're listening. It might not seem like a lot, but it's a substantial difference considering it's an increase in both dimensions. Again, almost double the overall pixels. And of course he's overlaid 4K and 5K uh, into the graphic here. And yeah, you know, there's a good amount of extra pixels packed in. And some people are gonna be like, a 4K display is so much cheaper, this new studio display is 5K. There's not a lot of 5Ks out there on the market, but you know what? This extra resolution, it does come in handy, not just visually. When you're looking at stuff to make it you know, crisper, pop a little bit more, that's nice. But you know, practically, whenever I take a screenshot and insert it into a video to show people, when I do that on my Mac display, this is just an example, I get so much more uh, usability in terms of how much I can zoom because there's so many more, so much more information packed in that screenshot versus when I do a screenshot on like one of my LG monitors that's just a 4K display. Uh, I can't really zoom in and you really start to see those images fall apart. So, you know, that's just an example. The 5K does matter in pr professional circumstances aside from just looking good. One of the arguments that I was following on Twitter was happening at, on the day that this launched was happening between Jonathan Morrison, who was all about the monitor, and then Snazzy Q, Quinn Nelson. But Jonathan had this tweet, uh, last thought on the studio display before I dive into the coverage, haven't seen this level of cynicism since the iPhone XR, and it's disheartening. It's not perfect, the power cable's dumb, we could have loved and the power cable, uh, what he's talking about there is it doesn't unplug from the back. You know, Apple just came out with the new iMac and it has a really nice uh, power cable that easily disconnects. Well, on this new studio display, it doesn't disconnect. You need some crazy thing from the Apple store to disconnect it unless you actually yank it out like Linus did, which you're not supposed to. Would have loved 1000 nits and 120 hertz, but it's an incredible display in terms of color, brightness, and resolution. And actually Jaime Rivera, who, doesn't always live in the Apple world, doesn't always um, default to liking Apple stuff, which is good. You know, we, we need critics of stuff to help things improve. He commented under Jonathan Sweet and he said, thank you, it's a good display. Sure, it's a bit pricey, but I can't deny how much I'd be willing to pay an extra $300 for any of my three LG displays to be made of aluminum and to have better speakers. It's not like if anything else in that price range is much better. And uh, here we're getting into you know, people are trying to say, is it a good value for the price? And I think it's important to point out, you just have two different mentalities kind of approaching a lot of Apple gear and not just this studio display. 
Some people are just only about the money, right? Give me the minimum viable, passable thing for the cheapest price. And other people are like, no, you know what? Um, I do want to spend a little bit more. I'll, I'll consider this like an affordable luxury, right? Because it's not like an actual luxury most of the time with Apple stuff. The, the gold Apple watch was like a crazy luxury, but most Apple stuff kind of fits into the affordable luxury thing because how many people own iPhones, right? But for instance, here's Tim Blair who's saying, a Samsung Odyssey G9 costs $400 less, has 1000 nit brightness, ultra wide OLED panel with 240 Hertz refresh rate and a 98 plus color accuracy. And then it doesn't have the speaker. So he says, buy a hundred dollar speaker set. That's going to sound better than the studio display anyways to go with it. And then he ends by saying, congrats. You've now saved $300 and you doubled your value. And this person uh, is the example of somebody who's, and there's nothing wrong with this view, right? Everyone do what they want to do. Who's like, no, saving 300 bucks matters more to me than the convenience or the look or anything else. But Jonathan pops back and he's like, no, that doesn't double my value because that's only a 1440p monitor. Resolution only goes wide. Ha, it's a killer option, no doubt, but two different things. So the question comes up, like what are the best alternatives then? If for whatever reason, you're not interested in the studio display. Well, it's the things that were already there. One of those is the LG Ultrafine 5K, which is going to return as an alternative here. Now I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, does that look better? than Apple's studio display? Um, no, it doesn't. Honestly, no, it doesn't. Clearly, it doesn't have as many features as the studio display. It's just a 5K monitor, basically. And actually, it was developed in combination with Apple. LG and Apple work together. It does have Thunderbolt connectivity. And as this article puts it, ideal 5120 by 2880 resolution for retina scaling on a Mac. And that's what's made it a go-to option for a lot of Mac users over the last several years. There's a Mac Rumors article that says the Apple Studio Display reviews are kind of saying it's a confusing miss. And I can't tell you how many confusing misses I've seen Apple sell a whole lot of. I'll give you one example. A lot of people just don't understand the new cheaper budget iPhone SE. It's got the guts of the latest iPhones, but it's paired with hardware that's older, right? And it doesn't have as many bells and whistles. And people are like, who would buy this? And guess what? It sells like hotcakes every time it comes out because some people want it. So switching back to the critiques of this new studio display, you know, somebody from Gizmodo said, on the top are vent holes for passive cooling. The rear panel got warm during my testing, but never reached concerning temps. Like those on the Mac Studio, the studio display's rubber pads failed to keep the monitor planted to my wooden desk. It slid around as I inserted or disconnected cables from the rear I.O. Does that sound like a huge thing to me? Because I've got two monitors on my desk right now from LG, they're ergo monitors, and those things are moving all over the place all the time. And, you know, sometimes I'm like, well, that's annoying, but I kind of expect a monitor to do that. CNBC was like, the picture quality on the studio display is good, but it's not gonna blow you away. I like that the text is nice and sharp, thanks to the extra pixels, so people who read on the computer for hours might want to consider it. And while it might seem expensive, it's a lot less than the Pro Display XDR Apple also sells, which costs 5,000 before you add the $1,000 stand. So CNBC is like, it's good, but I don't know, I, I wanted something even better. <laughs> what kind of, you know? Now, Mr. Patel from The Verge says, the real issue is that for $1,600, that's a lot of money, and here it's buying you panel tech that is woefully behind the curve. Compared to Apple's other displays across the Mac, iPhone, and iPad lineup, the studio display is actually most notable for the things it doesn't have. So one of those things is that it's SDR, not HDR. 
So Apple sells a professional HDR display for a lot more money that regular people aren't gonna buy. This is another thing people are like, why would they make that? They make it for a niche, right? Of people that need it to exist. So he's pointing out that it seems to have ancient backlight tech and that it also only features a 60 Hertz refresh rate. But if we're honest, a lot of people aren't doing serious gaming on an Apple machine. They're doing like serious work and you're not sitting there scrolling around like you are on a phone or an iPad potentially. You know, the iPad Pro with that 120 Hertz, you got the Apple Pencil and you need that low latency. You know, it, it makes a difference if you're doing some pro stuff. People went on and they said, you know, hey, it's too bad that we lack true blacks on the studio display because it's LCD, it's not OLED. I'm not gonna argue with that. I love my OLED TVs, I love my OLED devices, but at the same time, one of the main arguments against the studio display seems to be, but I want something cheaper. So are you gonna find an OLED screen for cheaper? Oh, it doesn't have true blacks. Well, OLED's better, but show me the cheaper OLED option that's gonna look better and have true blacks. The Verge goes on to say, you know, look, the mic and the speakers sound great, really, really great. You can adjust the three mic array to do voice isolation or not in control center, and you'll sound as good or better on calls as any conference mics I've ever heard. To have this stuff built in and not have the clutter all around and have it sound good, like even The Verge is saying, this stuff is cool, it matters, right? But here comes another nitpick, and that is that the spatial audio seems like a gimmick. But let's be honest, whatever your view on the spatial audio is, that it's a gimmick or it's amazing, you're probably not gonna be encountering anything on a day-to-day -day basis where you really need to rely on it uh, anyways, whether it's great or not. One thing that I find really cool is the nano texture glass option though. Now this is like a love it or hate it thing. Um, the first time I experienced it, it was like, um, this is really cool because I had a window right here and my, my desk was here, window here, really bright, got reflections all the time and the nano texture was so helpful and I fell in love with it at that point. Now, that means if you do get it, it's gonna cost you more and it's not as easy to clean as if you just get the anti-reflective coating. So, it, you know, know the room where you're gonna place this if you are going to get it is probably a good rule. That said, it does a really good job in my experience of getting rid of glare. In fact, what home office doesn't have a window around it these days? Probably most or all, right? And it's really hard to position your setup in a way that the reflections don't get you at some point during the day. Usually for me, it's in the mornings and it comes in now from this side because of where I've got things set up. And I just know at like nine in the morning during a certain time of the year, it's just gonna ruin my experience. And this would go a long way towards fixing that. So here's a question, is Apple Care worth it? Now I've had Apple Care couple times for a few different products over the years, but I actually haven't bought it. I haven't purchased it recently, maybe in the last four or five years. Why is that? Well, I just haven't felt that it was necessary, but let's dive into some of the pros and cons. I'm gonna help you make a decision. All right, here's Apple's pitch in case you're interested. Because Apple makes the hardware, the operating system, and many applications, Apple products are truly integrated systems, and only AppleCare products give you one-stop service and support from Apple experts. So most issues can be resolved in a single call. Basically, AppleCare is your one-stop shop. That's what Apple's saying. You get your hardware service and your software support 
all with one extended package here. And just so you know, most Apple hardware comes with a one-year limited warranty and up to 90 days of complimentary technical support. But if you wanna extend that coverage further, then you can get Apple Care Plus. So what does that cost? For Apple Care Plus for a Mac, you're looking at $34.99 annually or $99 for three years. Apple Care Plus for an iPad, $3.49 monthly or $69 for two years. Apple Care Plus for your iPhone, $3.99 monthly or $79 for two years. For your Apple Watch, $2.49 monthly or $49 for two years. And then of course you can get it for the studio display, for your AirPods, for the Apple TV, and also for the HomePod. Now, I don't know if you know how you can check if you have it or not, but like if, if you're on a Mac, you can go to About This Mac and select Service and Check My Service and Support Coverage Status. Or if you have an iPhone, you can go to Settings, General, About, and you'll figure out if you have Apple Care there too. Okay, but is it worth it? Oftentimes it is, and it really comes down to, number one, how you use your devices. Number two, where you use your devices. In other words, do you have many opportunities for things to get broken or lost? And I guess the way to think of that is, if your Mac is always parked at your computer, it's never gonna move and you don't, and it's like in your home office, not in a shared space, maybe you have a little less incentive to get Apple Care Plus. If you're hard on your iPhone, or if you are the type of person who doesn't like using a case, you like to keep things naked, well, then maybe you wanna basically use Apple Care Plus as your case instead of uh, actually having a case. Now, your iPhone, you're taking that out. It's, you know, you're not just parked at a home base with that, potentially. And if you have a MacBook, you're taking that out. And it's not just stationary. You're gonna be around other people, and there's just more opportunity for things to get dropped, to break, uh, or to get lost or stolen. So anything that's mobile, then I think that increases the likelihood that you would enjoy Apple Care coverage. But here's the interesting thing. This is basically insurance, right? And what you don't wanna do is have great coverage, but then be what they call insurance poor, right? <laughs> and if you're doing Apple Care Plus as a subscription, it's just like one more subscription. And subscription fatigue is real these days, even if it's a small amount. All right, so iGeek's blog actually did some math for us. Let's take a look at it. Now this is back in the iPhone 12 days, so we're just gonna roll with it. Let's say you accidentally dropped your iPhone 12 Pro and now you need a screen repair replacement. With Apple Care Plus, that's $29 plus $199 paid for Apple Care in the first place, so that's $228 plus tax. Without that, you're gonna be paying $279 plus tax. So 228 versus 279, it's a savings but it's still a lot. Now, if you lost your iPhone 12 Pro and you have the Apple Care Plus theft and loss, then your new Pro is gonna cost you 149 plus 269 with Apple Care Plus, so 418 plus applicable taxes. Without that, you're paying full price, which is 999. So in that instance, obviously it's worth it. It's still not you know, cheap to replace it, but it's basically 50% better. So in that instance, it, again, it comes down to, are you gonna lose your phone? Is it gonna get stolen? What are the chances? What's the likelihood? But that's much more worth it to me. All right, what about for a Mac, where a battery replacement is gonna cost $199 for a MacBook Pro, for instance? Um, well, if you have a drive failure or you need that replaced, that can be between $159 and $459. And I like the way that they put it here. This is basically what I just told you. It just in different words. <laughs> it says, if you're clumsy, if you're an extensive user, if you're an avid traveler, 
or the device changes hands often, then it's wise to opt for Apple Care Plus. We're talking about a Mac here. And yet they're like, if you're stationary for four and a half hours a day at a desk, then you have a lower risk level. That's exactly what I said too. All right, what about an iPad? If you need a screen replacement for your iPad, it's gonna cost you between 299 and 649, depending on the model. However, with Apple Care Plus insurance, you're gonna pay $49 plus taxes. Now that's pretty cool. If you're uh, an iPad user, like let's say the iPad Pro, right? It depends how you use it, but if you damage that screen and you're like using Apple Pencil all the time because it gets a big scratch in it or something, that will ruin your experience. The screen is literally everything on an iPad. So this really could be worth it. And especially when you take into consideration if you have the Magic Keyboard and the Apple Pencil and the iPad Pro, for instance, or the Air, because that uses all the same accessories. And those are covered as well. Um, I feel like Apple Care Plus for the iPad line is one of the more worth it instances of using Apple Care. So let me just wrap up all these musings by just saying I haven't had Apple Care for a long time because generally my Apple stuff works really well for many, many years, and I very rarely have any issues uh, with things. It's so rarely that I haven't chosen to get Apple Care Plus on anything for so long. And I tend to be working just from home most of the time, pretty stationary, and I haven't done a lot of travel, especially with the pandemic for the last couple of years. Um, I'm not in and out of the office or commuting all the time. So um, yeah. It just depends. That's the answer. That's not the answer you want to hear. But hopefully as we talk things over, you kind of realize what scenarios or situations would make sense for you and your usage, whether or not you would want Apple Care Plus. All right. I want to end this podcast by just kind of talking a little bit about something that you can do, a mindset that you can take to sort of be your own bailout. This is a concept that I like to talk about all the time. Instead of waiting for a handout for help to come, you know, the sirens, woo someone's coming to rescue you just don't wait for the handout be your own bailout sort of my personal motto and so here's justin Wal uh, welsh he's got an interesting tweet here it says treat your career like a vc that's a venture capitalist build a portfolio of revenue streams knowing that one's going to hit big the diversified entrepreneur now i told you at the beginning of the podcast that millionaires on average have seven streams of income how many income streams do you have for a lot of people out there, it's one, and it's their day-to-day -day paycheck. And uh, if something was to go wrong with their life and, and they couldn't get you know work, they, maybe they're fired, um, which has happened to me a couple times, um, there, there goes that income, and it causes people a lot of grief. So in my own experience, what I did was I had a side hustle. It was a blog at first that turned into a YouTube channel, and I've continued to diversify in different ways. And now, if something were to go wrong, with my YouTube channel, I'm gonna be okay because I got another stream of income over here, actually a couple different ones. Um, and so it's gonna take a lot more to bring me down. And at the same time, I've talked about this concept of two things that you can invest. There's time and there's money. And life's not fair, it really isn't. And if you can invest money, you can make money a lot faster than if you can only invest time. But I took that route. People look at me often and they're like, well, you're just a trust fund kid. I'm not a trust fund kid, I've just put that myth to bed so many times here, right? Um, I spent 10 years building up my business, my current business, and I started with nothing, and I just invested my time, and this growth was very slow, very organic, um, but it's sort of like a curve, and that curve starts to aim up, up and to the right over time, and the thing is, you have to just put in the time and be okay putting in that time and not getting a big return for like years. You gotta think with a longer term mentality right? 
And like I always say, if it's gonna take you three to five years to really diversify into another stream of income for yourself through just investing your time, uh, then aren't you gonna be glad in three to five years when you do get fired or when you really need that, that you started now? Or alternatively, if something bad is gonna happen to you right now and you could have used that extra income, you would have really appreciated your, in your past self starting three to five years before that, right? So that's something to end this podcast um, on here. Diversify what you're doing in your life. You can have a side hustle. Even if you already have a side hustle, what else can you do? There's interesting ways in, in my uh, video, five ways to earn six figures with nothing but an iPad could be very applicable to you. You can look that up on YouTube. All right, that's gonna do it for today's podcast. I hope you guys really liked it. Don't forget to check out the clips on the Clips channel. There is definitely gonna be some exclusive content there as well. And I'll catch you guys in the next video. Later.